Change can be really, really hard. I mean, who of us wouldn't want to go back to where it is in the beginning, the way that we were cared for, the way that we were provided for, to be able to enter back into that place that is known and secure, but someone or something is going to nudge you, push you, to take you to a place where you don't want to go, that time doesn't stand still, that we have to enter into a new reality, into a new future. And that new reality often takes us to the deep end, where we are in way over our heads and wave upon wave upon wave disorients us. And so who hasn't ever had a moment like little Piper here to want to retreat, to go back, dazed, and to stay safely upon the shore? We're in the midst of a series of messages where we're talking about fear, and we're talking about how we don't just have particular fears, but we live in an age of anxiety, that we are surrounded by a meteor shower of what-ifs. What if I don't matter? What if things fall apart? What if I can't keep up? What if I don't have what it takes? What if I run out? What if that person isn't safe? What if I'm not included? What if this is the end today? We're talking about the fear of change. What if I can't keep up? And there's a great story in the Gospel of John that addresses this directly. In this story, one of the things that we discover is at the beginning of John chapter 1 that this cosmic Christ comes and enters into the world, that he becomes flesh, that he's full of both grace and truth, and that this cosmic Christ has a collision with all different kinds of people. In chapter 2, there's a newlywed couple that are afraid of running out. In chapter 3, we discover that there is a prominent man who has a lot to lose, and he is afraid of being noticed. In chapter 4, there is an unnamed Samaritan woman, and she's afraid that she won't be seen, that she won't be noticed at all. In each of those instances, God provides for them. For the newlywed couple, they're given the provision to have enough. 
For the person of Nicodemus, he's taught that he too can be born again, born from above. The Samaritan woman is given the chance to be able to have a living water that springs forth to eternal life, that she won't have to keep coming back to that well over and over again. And in chapter 5, Jesus encounters another man and asks him a remarkable question. Sometime later, Jesus went up to the mountain for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool where an Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down on ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. For 38 years, he has lived with this condition. For 38 years, he's been coming back year after year to this location at the time of the festival with a little bit of hope, with a little bit of assurance that maybe something might actually change this time. One of the things that we know about someone in his condition is that he was completely dependent upon the help of others, that he had this little mat, probably three feet by five feet. And strangely enough, his confinement was maybe one of the few things that offered him comfort, it was one of the few things of keeping him off of the ground, one little shred of dignity. And with that mat, it was maybe the one thing that he actually owned that was actually his. It is one thing for us to project as able-bodied people about what it was like back then. There's actually a paraplegic New Testament scholar who has done research, and he writes this. The challenges of a paraplegic in the 21st century, which are considerable, pale by comparison with a person in the first century. Problems of mobility and livelihood and social isolation just begin the list. We can build a portrait of this man's life. People moved him from place to place, unless he crawled. Most of the time, his income came from begging or from the charity of friends and family. And if he did not have a bladder or bowel control, like most paraplegics of his time, his hygiene problem would have been enormous. People stayed away from him. His hands used for mobility were rough and torn from the streets. I have seen these people in rural Egypt where they live a step below the poorest of the poor. Their life is agony. The despair, the disappointments pile up year after year. He grows in his skepticism. Every once in a while, he vacillates towards superstition the religious system is right there. He is in the shadow of a remarkable place. He's got more excuses than he's got prayers. 
The place where this man comes is known as the Pool of Bethesda. Here is a model mock-up of the city of what it might have looked like and where it is located of what we know from archaeological discovery. You'll notice that it's located just north of the temple wall. You can see all of the different columns that are there that we've discovered in the archaeological digs. And that this is not only located in a close proximity to the temple, it's located, as we discover in the story, next to what is known as the Sheep Gate. Here is an artistic rendering of some of the ruins of the Sheep Gate that are still there today. This is the place where they would have brought sheep into the area, and here is the pool by which they would have gathered and inspected the sheep as they would have made their way towards the temple. We know a couple of things. One, we know that there was a great deal of superstition about an angel possibly touching the water and people experience a miraculous cure if you're the first one in there. We also know that from this story that it is a time of a festival and that the city of Jerusalem would swell in population at festival times. Hundreds of thousands of people congregated in this small area. We know that as a disabled man that he would not have been welcome in the temple courts. So this is about as close, this is about as much hope that he could hold on to as if he had a chance to be able to receive a little bit of that divine touch or help. And so we know that there's all kinds of people with all kinds of struggles in this one location. We know that there's all different kinds of sacrifices being brought in the form of animals to the temple. And so that the pool of Bethesda was literally a zoo in a moment like this. And an anonymous man in the midst of a crowd, a rabbi walks up to him, singles him out, and asks a very pointed question. Do you want to get well? How rude is that? I mean, would you walk up to somebody who was clearly struggling from a lifelong debilitating illness, disease, or disability, and would you walk up to that person and say, hey, do you even want to get better? What kind of lack of social grace does Jesus have to have for this? Well, actually, I don't think it's rude. It's because Jesus is no ordinary person and he's looking past the disability into the heart of the matter. And he sees something there that needs to be addressed. Do you want to get well? Honestly, sometimes the answer's got to be, I'm not so sure. When Kelly and I got married, there were several things that she had to have known going into this that were going to be true. I mean, she knew enough about me that I wanted to be a pastor, and so church was going to be a central part of our lives together. She knows that I have a high degree of playfulness. I may not get anything done, but we are going to have a great time doing it. 
She knows a lot of the different aspects of my personality and the way that I operate. I am positive there is one thing that she did not know about me until we were married and living together. She knew nothing about my unique, distinct filing system, which is known as piles. Piles of stuff that nobody else knows what's in there. Piles where I can very easily go to a different, like an archaeological dig, a different eon, a different era to find exactly what she wants. Nobody else can figure it out, but I can. Anybody else struggle with piles disease in this sanctuary today? Anybody want to stage an intervention for a loved one or a family member right now with this? And so she's nagging me about these piles that she thinks are horrible and I don't do anything about them. One day I went to an office of a colleague that I respected, that I thought that I knew. And when I walked into this office, I was shocked. I was surprised by what I saw. This is not a stock photo. This is not a fake photo. This is not some reality television program. This is an iPhone me capturing this in this person's office. This is how they operated. This is how they lived. And I saw the natural result of my piles disease that if I didn't get a handle on it, that this is what could happen to me. And so I resolved to change. I started reading some books. One of the books that I started reading was called Unstuff Your Life. And in that book, it said this, for any number of reasons, we can resist change. It's okay. It seems to be a part of the human condition. It's worth noting that as creatures of habit, we would often prefer ineffective familiarity to efficient unfamiliarity if it means not having to change, even change for the better. Can you think of any part of your life where you prefer ineffective familiarity Familiarity to efficient unfamiliarity. Do you want to get well? Sometimes the answer is no. Been privileged to walk alongside a family who is in a moment of rehab with a teenage child. And one of the parents turned to one of those teenagers and asked, do you even want to get better? And you could feel the weight of the answer. Yes and no. I don't know what addiction it might be for you, what part of your life that is piling up and has been there year after year after year. Could be anger, it could be a relational problem, but maybe, maybe you prefer the predictability of your disability over the uncertainty of your own recovery. When I heard the parent ask that question, do you even want to get better? 
I wrote down in my own journal and notes later. Sometimes no, God. Sometimes I prefer self-righteousness of anger over the relief of forgiveness. Sometimes I prefer the quick reward of a bad habit over the deep satisfaction of freedom. Sometimes I prefer the frenzy of anxiety over the relief of peace. And sometimes I prefer being my own God to worshiping the living God. Do you want to get better? Did you notice that he doesn't even really answer the question? Did you notice the the invalid is asked this incredibly direct question and he kind of hedges? He doesn't say yes or no or really enter the question itself except for to offer an excuse. I have no one to help me when the pool water is stirred. He plays the role of the victim. He highlights his helplessness. And if you don't hear anything else from me today, I want you to hear this. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus will meet you even in the midst of your helplessness. This is the nature of his unfailing love. It's a true story of a young girl back in the Korean conflict whose life was marked by a really ugly war. She was the result of a biracial encounter in a society that absolutely shunned and shamed that. When she was three or four years old, her mom handed her a sack lunch, put her on her train, and with tears in her eyes said, take this train until everyone gets off of it at the end. Your uncle will be there to pick you up. And so the little girl got on a train, took the train to the very end of the line, but there was no uncle or family member who was there to claim her. She began a life at the age of three or four years old on the streets. She learned how to capture mice with her bare hands so that she could have something to eat. She learned how to steal food, whatever she could find in order to survive. She endured taunting, beating. She lived among the sewers and people referred to her by a name. She didn't even know what her real name was. They called her an awful label, a term, a tugi, which translates as fatherless garbage. One day, living amongst the sewers, she had contracted cholera. She was in horrible shape, but she was trying to help, after years, a couple uh, girls who were in trouble. The exertion overwhelmed her, and she passed out. And when she came to, for the first time in her life, she was staring at eyes that weren't like anything she had ever seen before. They were blue eyes. The woman who was there was a nurse from Sweden, Her name was Iris Erickson. She was a world vision missionary. Iris checked to make sure that she was okay. 
but Iris had very clear instructions. The instructions from the relief agency were to capture the smallest of infants because those are the ones who had a chance of being adopted. As hard as it was, she was to ignore the older children. Stephanie was about seven years old at this time. And Iris, that relief worker, who grew up in a Lutheran household and had no experience with God ever speaking directly to her, said she heard a voice from on high say, this one is mine. And so breaking protocol, she took the seven-year-old in. She brought her to the adoption place. And Stephanie helped out with the younger girls. She watched the pattern, families coming in, adopting an infant, families leaving. One day there was a large man and his wife who came to the adoption place. They were gonna adopt a little boy. They had already picked out a name for him the name Stephen. And they looked at all the babies and then they looked at this girl who was helping to care for the babies. And in a moment of tenderheartedness, the large man reached out to tell her that she was doing a good job. Something snapped within Stephanie. And she turned and she spat in his face, not once, but twice, And then she ran and she hid in the closet. She wondered how long she had as she was shaking before she would be kicked out from the one place that had brought her in. She eventually was out of the closet. She tried to go back to normal. Nobody said anything. The couple was gone. The next day, she was called into the main office. And when she walked in, she noticed that that Goliath-like man was sitting there with his wife. She began to be afraid. There was a translator there as well. And through the translator, he said, this is the one that we want. And then turning to her, he said, we want to bring you home. No longer a tugi. No longer fatherless garbage. They gave her a name. Instead of Stephen, they called her Stephanie. And this is what she looks like as a child. And this is what she looks like today. There's one glaring detail in today's story that everyone who would have heard of it would have known. 
That this man, for year after year after year, he keeps coming back to the same place, and that the place that he comes to is known as the Pool of Bethesda. And for us, that's just a name, but Bethesda in Aramaic and in Hebrew, it's bait meaning house and hesed meaning steadfast love. That he keeps coming to the house of steadfast love, that he, that he hasn't given up hope on that. That yes, the superstition has let him down, and yes, the religious system has let him down, and yes, his skepticism hasn't taken him anywhere, but in this moment, in this moment, he meets the Savior, and the Savior does the most unthinkable thing that anybody would do to someone who suffered with that disability, that he reached out to those rough hands, and he said to him, get up. And a little tremor of a great earthquake that's going to take place later in the gospel, that that's the very same command, that that is the very same words of rising from the dead. Here is a little resurrection moment. You and I desperately need to change. And the motive for our change is the steadfast love of God. And the resurrection is what gives us the power to truly change in the way that God wants us to change. There's another true story of a man who endured incredible hardship. He lived in almost a nobility kind of affluence, but he was taken from his home. He was taken across the sea. He was made into a slave. He forsook the atheism of his teenage years and he ended up writing this in the midst of his captivity. He said these words, it was here that God first opened my heart. God used the time to shape and to mold me into something better. He made me into what I am now, someone very different from what I once was, someone who can care about others and to work to help them. He found a way to an escape. He was able to extricate himself from all of the slavery and the harm and the hardship and the horror that he had seen before. He got on a boat and he was able to make his way back home and you would think that that would be the end of the story. But as he studied and as he prayed and as he reflected and the more that he knew, the more he realized that he had a call. Everybody thought he was crazy. But he got on a boat again and this time he landed on the shore of that place not as a slave but as a rescuer. And it was as he went from town to town, particularly the women and the orphans and the marginalized who received his message of restoration. The man I am referring to dates all the way back to the fifth century and his name is St. Patrick of Ireland. And do you really think we honor his legacy by drinking green beer? There's more. He was changed. And he was changed for good. Of course, we all want to go back. Of course, we want it all to be simple and to go back to the way that things were. And I don't know what's piled up in your life right now. 
but you and I desperately need to change. And in the midst of all of that change, there is this narrow gate, a sheep's gate. And Jesus invites us to walk through this gate. You may even have to crawl or be carried. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, Jesus says, and many will enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Later, Jesus will say, I am the good shepherd. And he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Won't you come to the pool of Bethesda Won't you hear the rabbi reaching out to you to say, get up? And will you realize that God says to you in the midst of your own adoption, this one, this one is mine. We want to take you home. Let's pray. Father, change is really hard. We want to stay safe. And yet you're pushing us and nudging us into the deep end of life. Help us to not just retreat to security, but to reach out in love and concern for others. In this age of anxiety, help us to overcome our fears of change particularly those parts of our lives that for years, maybe even decades that we've carried, even our confinement has become our comfort. And so, Father, I pray for anybody for whom their disappointments and despairs have have piled up and that the skepticism and the superstition have given them more excuses than prayers. Keep coming to meet us at the pool of Bethesda. Thank you for being our great shepherd. Ask those hard questions. Do you want to get well? And help us in the midst of our excuses and our helplessness to come and to be our Savior, to adopt us and claim us, and then also to send us out to be agents of change in a world that needs your resurrection power. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.